welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 5th of May 2013, entitled, Is the Old Relevant to a Modern World? And the Bible reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 6. His brother Steve Elliott. You'll have to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah, please. And uh, we're going to continue our look in the gates of Jerusalem. And um, if you remember, there are 10 gates that are mentioned in chapter 3. And uh, these are the gates that are being repaired. We've got all of the names of the people who are repairing them, all the names of the gates. And um, we've uh, looked at uh, two of these gates already. We've looked at the sheep gate and we've looked at the fish gate. And tonight we're going to have a look at the old gate. We're going to just take it up in one verse and then we're going to have a, uh, a look around the Bible. And um, verse 6, if you'd like to stand please for the reading of God's word. Verse 6, chapter 3, Nehemiah says, Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah. They laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. Please be seated. Well, tonight we're dealing with the old gates. And remember that as we've been looking through these gates, we've been looking that, um, that these gates have unique names. And um, what we're doing is we're basically looking at the names and uh, we're looking at how the gospel can be brought in to the names of these gates. Um, remember, we, uh, we thought about the sheep gates. What did that represent? Do you remember? The sheep gate was the first one, the, the primary one that's mentioned in the scripture. Well, the sheep gate was basically for the sacrifices, okay? And this is where the sheep were brought through, okay? And um, this is uh, the starting point, really, if you like, of our Christian faith is with a sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, the Bible says. And uh, next, when a person becomes a Christian, the next gate that he comes to will be the fish gate. We looked at that. And uh, the fish gate can um, resemble... um, the importance of fishing, fishing for men. And um, we remember that this gate was the gate that they used to bring the fish through in Jerusalem into the markets, probably a smelly gate. And, um, you know, if you were one of the blind people around, I'm sure you would have known which gate that you were going to be sitting at. Um, But uh, people would have, uh, fishermen would have brought fish from different areas, from the Mediterranean, from the Dead Sea, and uh, from the Red Sea, possibly, to sell um, through this gate. But tonight, we're looking at the old gate. What can the old gate represent to us? Well, um, it's said that the elders of the city met at the gate, the old gate, to discuss community issues and to make judgments on disputes among people. Um, So... Quite a few times in the scriptures, in the Proverbs as well, you'll see that the elders were gathered at the gates, okay? And um, this old gate 
was a gate where the elders used to judge and used to make um, decisions upon uh, the um, upon the community, the issues that they had. Well, this gate represents to us tonight eldership and the guidance that they give in the ancient paths. You know, a young Christian, having experienced the sheep gate and the fish gate, soon sees his need for experiencing the old gate. This gate speaks to us tonight of the old paths, of the old truths, of the word of God, which never change. Okay? We've been thinking this morning about some of those doctrines that never change. The doctrine of atonement, the doctrine of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, these kind of things, um, and these never change. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 6, and I'm just going to show you what Jeremiah said about the old paths, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. And I'm not saying tonight that everything that is, um, is old uh, is great or everything that's new is bad, okay? But we need to see from a biblical point of view um, how the old paths and the old truths are the ones that we need to stick to. Verse 16, Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see... And ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. So we see here that the old truths are where the good way is. It's where you and me, as Christians, where we're going to find peace. Um, Proverbs 22 and verse 8 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. There are some things that we should not move. Okay? There are certain truths, certain paths, good paths, good ways that the Lord has set down in this book, and we're not to remove them. If we do, we'll move them at our own peril. God warns us. Malachi says in chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, Well, this is what the Lord says through Malachi. The Lord says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Isn't that an encouraging verse tonight? You know, we're living in a world, we're living in a society, a time where things are changing all the time, aren't we? You know, only, what was it, months ago, you know, um, the big issue on the, um, on the TV was about the redefinition of marriage, wasn't it? This is an old path, an old truth that is set down in the word of God from the Garden of Eden, from the beginning, which should not be removed. But unfortunately today, these landmarks have been removed. The world are forever looking for the new thing. Just turn to Acts chapter 17. This is what they were doing in the days of the apostles, chapter 17 of Acts and verse 21. Let's just see what was uh, happening around in the time of Paul. But verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. When I was um, a member of uh, the Bible Pattern Church in Blackpool, 
years ago, there was, uh, he's still there, um, a precious brother in the Lord called Angus. And um, Angus was, I don't know if he still is, but he was um, a salesman. And um, his job was to go around companies and to promote um, new commodities and to help them to sell them. And I remember one um, Christmas time that uh, Angus, he, he did um, uh, a speak um, with all the children, and there were adults there as well. <coughs> and I remember what he said. And this is coming from somebody who knows what he's talking about. He said that the word new sells. If you want to sell something, if you want to make people find interest in something, you just put the word new by the side of it, and you'll get some interest, and you'll get some sales as well. The world are looking for something new. Jeremiah 6 and verse 16 goes on to tell us, if you'd just like to turn back there, if you don't, let me just uh, read it for you. Chapter 6 and verse 16. We read that uh, Jeremiah says that the old paths are the good way and walk therein, you're going to find rest for your souls. And then at the end of the verse it says, but they said, we will not walk therein. Stubborn people. The Bible says that stubbornness is as witchcraft. And it's around us all the time, and it's even in, it's in our human natures. We can be the most stubborn people. But it says here, but they said, we will not walk therein. And there are people today who are removing ancient landmarks that our fathers have set, that have been set down in the word of God, old paths, old truths which never change. And these people are saying, we will not walk therein. It's all around us today. Next time you read your newspapers, you look at your TV, you'll see it in front of you. Um, God's people refused to walk in these old paths. In 1992, not long after that I had become a Christian, I saw the need to experience the old gate, the old paths and the old truths. At that time, I was going to um, a Pentecostal church and um, um, this church, uh, they, they seemed to really love the, uh, the word of God and uh, the teaching was great. But unfortunately, they got themselves into what, some, what the pastor was talking about this morning was ecumenism. And uh, I had never heard of that word before in my life. I didn't know what it was all about. March for Jesus. Wow, great. Let's go on a march. Let's be a witness. Let's show all the people out there that we love Jesus Christ. And let's be, just be a witness for him. And it doesn't care who joins us as long as we're marching for Jesus. And you know, it wasn't until... I was sat in the congregation. Somebody passed me um, a cassette of Patrick Curry, Pastor Patrick Curry, all about ecumenism and the Catholic Church. And it wasn't until then I realized what was happening. And the ancient paths, the old truths, they were being moved. And um, it wasn't long after that that I left that church and I joined uh, the Bible Pattern Church and um, I never looked back until we came to Birmingham. And, um, you know, God blessed me there. And the teaching was great. It was. And, um, but I needed to experience the old gates, the old paths. And this pastor was a man who loved this book, the Bible. And he preached it. He preached it with tears in his eyes sometimes. And, um, but he, he warned us about these things, 
ecumenism and about removing the ancient landmarks. Uh, We do it at our peril. Change of the old truths happens when men are given to changing the old book, the Bible. That's where it starts. You know, the Bible says that judgment begins where? In the house of God. Begins with us. We are responsible. God has given us responsibility. He's given us his truths. Um, And we don't have any right whatsoever to change them. Um, Today's, tonight's question I would like to ask is, is the old Bible relevant to a modern world? Is the old Bible that we use, the authorized version, the 400-year-old Bible, the King James Bible, is this book, old book, relevant to a modern world? We're living in the year 2013 today. Um, Many people will say, no, it's not relevant. Many people will say, you know, we need a book that speaks to the modern man in modern-day English. And um, many people will cast this book aside. And, um, you know, Billy Graham, around the year 1991, when he was, um, he was putting his, appro- uh, his seal of approval upon the Living Bible, he said this. He said, the Living Bible communicates the message of Christ to our generation. Okay? Um, so this is a man who... Um, knows his Bible, and uh, he's basically saying that this new Bible, this the, this new Bible that's coming out, the Living Bible, it's communi- it communicates the message of Christ to our generation today. Is this 400-year-old book, is it relevant today? If so, why? Um, do the modern Bibles, do they uphold the old truths and the old paths? Do they uphold the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ like the authorized version? Well, there are a number of reasons why I believe that the old King James Bible is relevant to a modern world. And if you're a young person here tonight, I want to show you that this book is relevant to your life, your early years. Okay? Um, And I like to make two points tonight about why I believe it is relevant. The first one is that the old Bible is the standard Bible. The standard Bible historically in Great Britain is this book, the authorized version. Um, Isaiah 59 and verse 19 says, When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. That's how the Lord is going to deal with the enemy. He's going to lift up a standard against him. You know, through the dark ages, the enemy did come in to this land, what we're living in right now, through Roman Catholicism. All you need to do is get a good Christian history book and look at what happened in the Dark Ages, from around the year 1300 up to around the year 1600. And you just see 
the attempts that the Roman Catholic Church had upon this land. They had their eyes upon this country. What England needed at that time was one standard Bible that stood against Roman Catholic dogma. Let me just read you what the preface to the King James Bible says. This was written in 1611 by the translators. They said, truly good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principle good one. So that was their intended aim, was to make one good Bible, one standard, one principle English Bible for the English-speaking people. And this was the result in 1611. Around the year 1605, if you know your history, um, there was a man called Guy Fawkes. You know, many of the young people today, they don't really have a clue what Bonfire Night is all about. They don't know the history about it because they're not being taught. But there was a man called Guy Fawkes, and uh, there were about 13, uh, and there were Jesuit priests, Roman Catholics, um, who hated this country. They hated the uh, sanction of the Bible, of this Bible, and um, they wanted and they tried to do all that they could to destroy this country and to destroy the king and the royal family and um, Westminster as well. And uh, they had a plan. There was going to be a, a, an opening of Parliament um, in 1605 in November, and um, a letter came to one of the um, Roman Catholic members in the Parliament, which basically um, warned him not to go to the opening. Okay, and uh, this letter found its way to King James, and it also found its way to a few others, and uh, this conspiracy was open, and um, Guy Fawkes was found um, in, the, uh, in the cellar of Westminster Abbey and um, of, of Parliament with 36 barrels of gunpowder. And his aim with the rest of these uh, plotters was to destroy the opening of Parliament and to kill the King of England, King James, and the royal family to blow up the whole of Parliament and also the religious leaders as well, who some of them were involved in the translation of this new Bible that was coming out. But by the providence of God, it failed. We may not understand this, this evening the real um, significance of that, because if that, had, if that plan had gone ahead, we may well be this evening a Roman Catholic nation. We may well have been. And we may well have been under the power and the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. Clive Anderson, in his book, Gunpowder, Treason and Plot, he says this, he says that one of the reasons the plotters had for acting sooner rather than later was that they could not tolerate the newly sanctioned version of the Bible especially as it was going to be the best yet 
for that would mean that the Roman Catholic cause would decline at a, rate a great, at a greater rate. You know that historically the authorised version has been the only English translation since 1611 that hasn't had manuscripts underlying its text or footnotes that are sympathetic to Roman Catholic dogma. That's the truth. Um, a question for you this evening. Now, I'm not here this evening um, to criticise anybody. I'm not here to tell you off. <laughs> Who am I to do that? But what I am here tonight to do is to give warning. As a preacher, as a teacher, that's what God wants me to do. And I want to warn people tonight that Satan is not asleep. You know, the first attack that he, he gave was in the Garden of Eden when he said, Hath God said? Yea, hath God said? And his attack was upon the word of God, put in doubt. Um, a question tonight. Are you prepared to adopt a Bible that is modern, that teaches confessions of sins to a priest? Mariolatry, her perpetual virginity, celibacy of the priest, condoning of selling of masses, the elevation of Peter. Are you prepared to adopt a Bible that promotes these teachings? Well, if you adopt a modern Bible today, this is what you will be doing. Um, it, it's very subtle, and you may not realize at the start until it's been pointed out. And um, it's very subtle. The enemy is very crafty. Um, but I'd like tonight just to point out a few important truths about our standard Bible. Um, not only is it historically the standard Bible for Great Britain, but it's also the standard Bible for revival as well. When was the last time that we had a great revival in England? Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, he says, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. I'd just like to listen to some names who use the Standard Bible to bring world revival. Just listen to some of these names. William Carey. Have you heard about him? Have you ever read his biography? Wow. Incredible. William Booth, Salvation Army. John Wesley, who preached thousands to thousands, millions were saved through his preaching. Um, Charles Wesley, we sing his hymns tonight, today. George Muller, rest, uh, the uh, orphanages in Bristol. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. John Newton, Robert Rakes, who started the Sunday schools, Charles Finney, Fanny Crosby, she wrote thousands of hymns based upon scripture, C.T. Studd, D.L. Moody, Gypsy Smith, C.H. Spurgeon. These were men and women that stood upon the Bible of revival. 
There was one name that I missed out tonight. Do you know that um, Charles Darwin, he actually gave a gift of some money to the London Missionary Society. Why would an evolutionist, why would the evolutionist give money to a Christian cause, to a Christian mission? Well, I'm going to tell you the answer. I'd just like to quote from uh, Final Authority. Its um, author is William P. Grady, and um, he says that in 1833, Charles Darwin visited the South Sea Island of Tierra del Fuego. Does anybody know where that is? I've actually seen it with my own eyes. And I actually stood on a, a beach overlooking Tierra del Fuego. I had my little sketchbook and I was drawing a picture of it. I couldn't believe that I was, what I was looking at. Does anybody know where it is? Jellico told me. Chile. That's right. Okay, it's right down there in the south where Angelica was born. Okay, and it's part of a place called Patagonia. This is the region, okay? This is where Angelica's from. Um, and it says that um, Charles Darwin visited this uh, island and in search of his elusive missing link. Upon observing the island's benighted inhabitants, Darwin concluded that he had indeed happened upon a lower stratum of humanity that would support the theory of evolution. Confident in his discovery, he wrote, the, Fue the Fuegians are in a more miserable state of barbarism than I ever expected to have seen any human being. The expression of their faces is inconceivably wild, and their tones and gesti gesticulations are far less intelligible than those of domestic animals. This is what Charles Darwin witnessed with his own eyes. However, after 36 years of gloating, Darwin made the mistake of returning to his island of darkness. To his amazement, he found an entirely different community consisting of churches, schools, homes, and every semblance of tranquility. The mystery was soon unraveled. Missionary John G. Patton, We've been to his um, family's graveyard in Scotland. Um, missionary John G. Patton had integrity, sorry, had invaded the hell hole with the word of God, showing more integrity than 20th century Nicolaitans. Darwin was willing to give credit where credit was due, writing. This is what Charles Darwin said. He said, I certainly should have predicted that not all the missionaries in the world could have done what has been done. The naturalist was so dumbfounded by what he witnessed that he made a generous contribution to the London Missionary Society. Isn't that incredible? That's maybe something that you didn't know. That is really amazing. Well, that was one man with the book of revival, the word of God. And he took that book to these islands. And a rev revival happened. Wonderful. Wouldn't you agree this evening that revival is one need that we have in this nation? We have need of it, don't we? This land is dry. The people are dry. 
like those dry bones in Ezekiel. There's no breath in them. This is like the description of our nation today. I wonder, how is it going to come? Well, I believe that there needs to be a return back to the Bible of revival. You know, the Bible says, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You know, it's not just enough to hear what's in this book, but it needs to be kept as well. But you know, to keep it, we need to hear it. Unfortunately, in the missing, um, in the modern Bibles, um, Jack Mormon, who wrote a pamphlet at the back of our church, which can be read, there's a church copy, he says that there are 2,544 fewer words in the modern Bibles, in the text that underlies the modern Bibles. Remember, the Bible says, blessed are they that hear the word of God. If you've got a Bible that has 2,544 fewer words, you're going to be less blessed. You know that that is the equivalent of First and Second Peter in the Bible. Not only is it the standard Bible for revival, but it's also the standard Bible for evangelism as well. As Christians, we must have a standard Bible in evangelism. I've been an evangelist quite a few years, and I've worked with different organizations, and my experience tells me that we need to have one principal Bible when we're doing evangelism. Why? Because we need to be able to say to that person in front of us, thus saith the Lord. Not, well, this is what my Bible says. I wonder what your Bible says, or I wonder what their Bible says. We need to have a principal book that says, thus saith the Lord. You know, the Bible says, that, um, that God is not the author of confusion. And he doesn't want us to be confused about his word. You know that um, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 8, Paul says, For if the trumpet given on certain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? We don't want, we don't need an uncertain sound. You know, Muslims, as part of their promotion of Islam, they point to the fact that because we have so many versions, the church doesn't know which Bible to use. And you know, that is so correct. It really is. number of times where I have been speaking and witnessing to a Muslim, and one of the first things that he will say to me is that, why is your Bible corrupt? Why has it been changed? Why have you got so many versions of the Bible? Where is the word of God? And you see, this gives them a great excuse to say that our book has never been changed. Our book is the same. You know that the heathen will never take us seriously while we look at each other with uncertainty. It's not going to happen. We need to have a sure foundation. Not only is it the standard Bible for evangelism, but it's also the standard Bible for scripture memorization. Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. How can you hide God's word in your heart when it changes with every new Bible that comes out? 
That's confusion, isn't it? You know that differing texts, differing texts discourage Bible memorization. We had this morning um, an example of that where somebody was um, trying to find a verse in the Bible and uh, trying to um, ask me, I was trying to find it in my, on my computer and um, this person, you know, said basically all the, uh, all the scripture but there were a few uh, words that were different, okay? And then it came to my mind, I thought, hmm, I wonder if that person has listened or read that verse in another Bible. I've been thinking about that even over the last couple of days because, you know, for quite a few years I used to use the New King James Bible and even today I still get scriptures mixed up and I mix them up together. It's like when I'm trying to speak Spanish. I mix my Spanish words up with Hebrew. You think that's, that's true? I don't know what it is in my mind, but it's true. And sometimes when I'm trying to memorize scripture, I find that what I'm doing is I'm actually remembering what I learned years past. And sometimes those words are completely different to what I have in my Bible today. And we went to... Um, you know, uh, Brother uh, Romani got his, um, his Google out and he Googled it. And it turned out that the verse was in the New International Version. So you see how easy it is, don't you? You know, the, the King James Bible, it's been proved, okay, that this is actually one of the easiest translations to memorize. It's got less syllables. It's got rhyme. And it's also got rhythm in it as well. That's worth studying. Not only is the old Bible the standard Bible, secondly, I'd like to look this evening as we finish. The old Bible is the sound Bible. The old, this old Bible is still relevant today because it is sound. It's sound in its theology and in its doctrine. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 22 and verse 42, he said, what think ye of Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? What do you think of Christ? Who is he? Whose son is he? Hmm. You know that what a person thinks of Christ will determine what he does with him. Let's look at how the old Bible treats the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ compared to the Bibles of today, the modern Bibles. And I've only got really three uh, scriptures for us to look at tonight. There is material on the back table, and you can study this subject at your heart's desire. I would love tonight to have more time, but I'm just going to give three examples. And really, if, you, if God shows you this here tonight, maybe you could just go on a search and ask God, pray to God, show me the truth. Show me the old paths. Is this true? And I believe God will truly show you the truth. Let's have a look, first of all, at the person of Christ. A belief, a belief in the proper deity of Christ is indispensable to being a Christian. 
I'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And what I've done tonight is I don't just want to rely upon my um, ideas, thoughts. Okay, I want to back what I am saying up tonight with some, some weight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quote from um, the, Trinitary, the Trinitarian Bible Society. Um, so that's just going to give it a little bit of um, weight behind what I'm saying, okay? Because I want to back what I'm saying. I want to back it up. Um, okay, this is a wonderful verse for the deity, the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. God was manifest in the flesh. There is a wonderful proof of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see Jesus as he is, who he is. We need to see his deity. Yes, we need to see his manhood, but we need to see that he is God. And this verse here makes it so clear. There is no controversy. This verse says here that God was manifest. He was made alive in the flesh. The Bible says in John chapter 1, doesn't it, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Let me read what one of the modern versions of the Bible says um, in this verse. Chapter 3 and verse 16, 1 Timothy. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations and believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. You notice one word that was missing in that verse? That's the word God. And it's been replaced with the word he. Let me just quote what the Trinitarian Bible Society uh, have written about this omission. Um, which Bible version does it really matter? And uh, page 18. And it says here, The real reason why this alteration is found in the modern text is understood from the history of the Revised Version of 1881. This project was originally sanctioned by the Church of England and intended as a limited revision of the authorised version. The final product, however, was based on the new Greek text of Westcott and Hort, begun three decades earlier. The presence of Dr. G. Vance Smith. This is an interesting man. He was on the translating committee of the Revised Version. Okay? This man was a Unitarian. He was a Unitarian minister. On the revising committee provoked a row with several thousand Anglican clergymen signing a protest. But Westcott and Hort defended his presence and he remained. The altered reading of 1 Timothy 3.16 was, of course, quite suitable to Dr. Smith. You know what the Utenian... 
Unitarian, sorry, Unitarians believe. They actually believe that Jesus Christ is not God. But the Holy Spirit is not God. They don't believe in the Trinity. And he said this about this, um, this verse, this reading. He says, the old reading has been pronounced untenable by the revisers, as it has long been known by, uh, to me by all careful students of the New Testament. It is another example of the facility with which ancient copiers could introduce the word God into their manuscripts. He believes that this word God was introduced in there by copiers of the Bible. He wanted to corrupt the Bible and put God in there. Well, he goes on to say, a reading which was the natural result of the growing tendency in early Christian times to look upon the humble teacher as the incarnate word and therefore as God manifested in the flesh. The consequence, of course, is that one of the clearest statements of Christ's divinity is removed from the Bible and that after multitudes of believers have for centuries derived instruction and encouragement from it. But today it's missing. And you know that that weakens the doctrine of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you find the doctrine of the deity of Christ in other places in these new Bibles? Certainly can. But it's weakened. Let me just read what um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about this verse, and this is really good. Speaking about the word God being omitted, he says, Does it tell us that a man was manifest in the flesh? Assuredly, that cannot be its teaching, for every man is manifest in the flesh. And there is no sense in making such a statement concerning any mere man and then calling it a mystery. Was it an angel then? But what angel was ever manifest in the flesh? And if he were, would it be at all a mystery that he should be seen of angels? Is it a wonder for an angel to see an angel? Can it be that the devil was manifest in the flesh? If so... He has been received up into glory, which, let us hope, is not the case. Well, if it was neither a man nor an angel nor a devil, who was manifest in the flesh? Surely he must have been God. And if so, the word be not there, the sense must be there or else. Nonsense. Hmm. Very good, isn't it? Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I know all the pastor likes... Uh, Spurgeon. Um, yeah, the Trinitarian Bible Society just quotes here about that verse saying that the great majority of Greek copies read God. Okay? They translate the Bible from the Greek into the languages of today. Um, you know, one of the greatest titles of the Lord Jesus in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know him. That is his title. You cannot exalt the Lord more than, be, than calling him the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his full deity title. You know that in the modern Bibles today, 
according to Jack Mormon in his booklet at the back, he says on page 10, he says that the Lord has been admitted 35 times. Jesus has been admitted 36 times and Christ has been admitted 44 times. Wow. Well, we could go on and on really with the person of Christ, but let's just have a look briefly at a couple of scriptures to do with the work of Christ. You know, Patrick Curry once said to me, um, as my pastor, he said that the false cults, they always get one or two things wrong about Jesus Christ. It's either his person or his work. Most of them get them both wrong. But the shedding of Christ's blood, we were thinking about it this morning in our communion time, the shedding of Christ's blood to atone for our sins is of vital importance. And we cannot, we don't need a Bible that waters this doctrine down, that weakens this doctrine. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says that the shedding of blood, sorry, without the shedding of blood is no remission. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of God's blood. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. In the modern Bible, in the NIV, it says, well, let's just read what it says in our uh, King James Bibles tonight. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. Colossians 1 and verse 14. And here we see uh, the doctrine of the atonement. Paul says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The NIV says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The blood has been removed. It's been taken out. Can you find the blood in the new Bibles in other, in other places? You certainly can, but it's not going to be there as many times. And it's going to be weakened. That doctrine is going to be weakened. Let me just read as we, uh, as we finish tonight. Um, another booklet about this verse from uh, Trinitarian Bible Society. And it says this, that the authorized version provides the important words through his blood, which are crucial to our understanding of redemption. It is by means of Christ's blood the precious blood of the covenant, that eternal redemption has been provided for his people. Listen to this. It is interesting to note that the New International Version is seeking to communicate with modern man, yet omits the necessity of Christ's death and the shedding of his blood for man's salvation, a doctrine that modern man finds disagreeable. <laughs> a lot of people don't like to hear about the blood, Muslims don't like to hear that. It's very disagreeable within the Islamic religion. They basically say that we pay for our own sins. They don't believe in the, uh, um, in, the, in, in the origin of sin, that we pass it on, we pass the consequences on. And they believe that, that we pay the price for our own wrongdoings. Well, the Bible says that it's the blood that pays the price for us. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'd just like to finish with one verse tonight. 
And you know, as I said before, that I used to use, and I've still got my New King James Bible on my bookshelf, and it's got some notes in there that I that I look at quite often. And um, but let me just show you one very serious translation in the New King James Bible, chapter two. And if you like to, if you like to follow it in verse eight. And again, we're thinking about the atonement. We're thinking about the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you know, if Jesus Christ didn't finish that work on the cross, we were thinking this morning, we were reading that wonderful verse where Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. Right. Let me read Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. In the authorized version, it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. That's where his obedience took him. It took him unto death, to die on that cross for us. And then he says, even the death of the cross. That is an important doctrine. Let me just read you what it says in the New King James Bible tonight. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Is that significant? To the point of death? Let me just read you what somebody uh, wrote in one of um, his booklets. And I'm going to quote what what he says in it. And... um, if you'd like to um, you know, have a look at some of these materials, please feel free. Um, he says this about this verse in the New King James Bible. He says that, Note the, various, the very serious alteration from unto death to, to the point of death. What do we understand today by a statement like that? Well, I was at the point of giving up. That's what we may, we, we may say to somebody, I was at the point of giving up, I was at my tether, and I got to the end. Well, we mean, I nearly gave up, but I didn't. You know, if a nurse, if Cherry, if she told us that a sick relative was at the point of death, we would understand that they were not yet dead. We might even still entertain hope of recovery. The New King James Bible is joined in this teaching, this pernicious alteration by other modern Bibles. Um, What do Muslims believe? Well, they believe that Jesus was crucified, but that he didn't die upon the cross. He only swooned, but later he revived. That's an acceptable doctrine to many people. No, he didn't go to the point of death. He went unto death. He died, the Bible says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Wonderful. Can you see tonight how the modern, today's Bibles, they weaken the doctrine of Jesus Christ? How can a doctrinally weak Bible, how can it be relevant to a modern world? You see, this modern world today, it needs truth. It doesn't need mixture from the truth and compromise. Is the old Bible relevant to a modern world? Oh, 
you bet it is. This book is relevant today, as it was 400 years ago. Let me read you a quote, and I'm going to finish with this, by a Christian man from India. Remember that William Carey, he went to India, and he brought the gospel to that that part of the world. Um, And he says this, he says, What the modern world needs is not something that comes from today, but from eternity, and which sounds like it has just come from the mouth of God. It is the AV that fits that category. Wow. That's so true, isn't it? What we need today is not something that comes from today, but from eternity. And that it sounds like it's come from the mouth of God. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you, Lord, this evening that we could just read these wonderful truths of the deity, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have not only inspired, but you have preserved us a Bible today in the English language that we can take and we can read and be confident that this is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. We thank you, dear Lord, tonight that our whole salvation, how our eternity rests, it depends upon a sure foundation. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have left this book tonight for us. We thank you, Lord, that we can also think upon the work of Jesus Christ, the precious atonement, the atoning blood that has paid for our sins. Oh, Lord, we thank you tonight that we have a Bible that upholds that doctrine. Lord God, we just pray that that you would help us, dear Lord, to be those that cherish this old book that you have left to us. And Lord, if there are people here tonight who maybe are confused, maybe this is the first time that they've heard some of these truths, these things, that Lord, that they will pray and ask you to show them the truth. Lord, you, you say that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and you will never show people a wrong path. Lord, we thank you that you, you love us tonight and you love your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.